Hello and welcome to another episode of the Breachside Broadcast, home of the finest voxcasting either side of the breach. Among the crime families of the Ten Thunders, trust is sometimes in short supply. No one knows that better than Misaki Katanaka, who killed her own father to become Oyabun herself. So, when Misaki loses trust in her most loyal agents, she turns to an unusual source of information. I hope you enjoy part one of Three Riddles and a Traitor, right after this word from our sponsor. This episode of the Breachside Broadcast is brought to you once again by the Kian Gong, the most famous tea house in the Little Kingdom. Join us for happy hour deals after work. It's the perfect way to unwind after a stressful day at the Guild Enclave. And if you happen to discuss sensitive or confidential topics during your stay with us, well, you can be sure our servers will treat this information with the utmost discretion. Three Riddles and a Traitor by N. A. Wolf. Night was coming for the little kingdom. Urchins selling greasy noodles, candied insects and steaming buns hastily packed up their stalls, emptying vats of stale oil and burnt syrup into the sewer. Silent attendants lit the hundreds of Hardeng in the square. Each lantern was but a tiny guardian against the darkness. Strutting between two of her saffron-clad Torakaji, Masaki Katanaka, Oyabun of the Ten Thunders scanned the bustling traffic like a viper searching for prey. Her target probably hadn't arrived yet. She knew that he would be here eventually. She trusted Monaco Ray's intelligence. And anyway, common sense dictated that the high street at dusk was always the best place to slip through town unnoticed. Perhaps her quarry foolishly thought that braving the side routes made him more mobile and less obtrusive. With Mazaki's sentries watching the alleyways, it didn't matter. The Oyabun would find her prize either way. A cry of agony erupted from the boulevard, and Mazaki gripped her basento in sweating but steady fingers, knuckles white. Her pulse dropped when she saw that it was only two peddler wagons that had collided in the square, their porcelain and wooden trinkets decorating the cobbles with shards and splinters. Both merchants were furiously shouting at one another in Mandarin. Their words weren't kind. They were the choicest of slurs, delivered with heavy accents. Masaki couldn't help but chuckle as she signalled her men to stand at ease. The argument quickly turned into a brawl, and several passers-by began to cast their own blows with glee. When Masaki reached the site of the kerfuffle, however, their participants stopped as if frozen, dusted themselves off and scurried away. The oyabun breathed in the crisp air of fading dusk with a satisfied sigh. The little kingdom was awash in colour and sound. The crowds rushed and teemed through the streets, but their movements grew furtive and timid as Masaki approached, 
She never grew tired of the way the sea of people parted before her, a sign of both respect and fear. They knew who she was. They knew what she had done to claim her birthright. The moment that Mizaki had separated her father's head from his shoulders, the little kingdom had changed forever. Under her leadership, the Ten Thunders' racket profits soared to record highs. Its network of informants had practically doubled, and its agents were more stringently trained and better equipped than ever before. This was in no small part to Mizaki's gambit of paying, coercing, or persuading many of the rival gangs in the Little Kingdom to partake in the various components of her well-oiled machine. The Thunder's exploits included smuggling rare artifacts from the Three Kingdoms, facilitating a black market for drugs and arms, and collecting protection money. They planned kidnappings, assassination, and grand theft. They tampered with crime scene evidence, and occasionally they tortured high-ranking guild officials for information. Each new client who beseeched Mizaki's men for legal services paved the way for his or her own extortion. Blackmail allowed the Thunders to heap profits upon profits. None of this was new. But Mizaki's father, Bao Jun, had been arrogant and uncollaborative in orchestrating these elaborate efforts. Mizaki was determined not to make these same mistakes. The rival gangs had fallen in line once she'd shown them Bao Jun's headless corpse. The Red Dawn, the Silent Blades, the Stinging Scorpions, and countless other crime families soon pledged their fealty. Perhaps they did so in the hope that Mazaki would be a wiser Oyabun than her father. She thought it more likely, however, that they feared the bold young woman who had murdered one of the most powerful and ruthless men in Three Kingdoms history without even batting an eye. The fact that Baojun's killing had been an act of self-defense, after a fashion, was unknown to them which was how Mazaki preferred it. My father raised me to kill, she had warned each of her rivals. He reaped what he sowed, and so shall you. But one gang remained stubbornly recalcitrant. The Black Dahlias of the Southern Kingdom. Aniam, Lanchoir of the Syndicate, had arrogantly dismissed her threats. The Franks have already taken everything away from us on Earth, we heed no master there, and we do not need one in Malifaux, he had once said before spitting at her feet, and my men and I will kowtow to no woman. One of the Tarakaji interrupted the Oyabun's reverie. Mistress, she said, her voice muffled from behind her porcelain mask. He's here. She pointed to a gang of five men dressed in black. They slipped through the crowded area independently, but always remained within a few meters of one another. To passers-by, they would have seemed completely ordinary, but to Mizaki's trained agents, the formation was clear. They'd been smart. Staying out in the open like this had prevented Mizaki from acting on previous occasions, but her patience was waning. Well spotted, Akiko, said Mizaki, almost affectionately. She had grown to like the girl over the years. Akiko was perceptive, but not inquisitive and she had an affinity for martial arts, the likes of which her tutors saw in few other pupils. Above all, Akiko was fiercely loyal to the Thunders. They had adopted her after both her parents had perished at sea on her twelfth birthday, and that act of charity had ensured her utter obedience. Mazaki could see Anne in the centre of the formation of black-clad figures, protected by his men on all sides. 
He was now passing a gushing fountain, less than a few dozen meters away. On my lead, the Oyabun commanded, before diving into the sea of people. With a graceful flip, Mizaki landed on the fountainhead. A pulse of magical energy radiated from the tips of her toes as they touched the fountain's stone spout, sending a thunderous shockwave through the crowd. The force of it sent water spraying into the air, and the civilians screamed and scattered. Those knocked to the ground were trampled as others fought to clear the square. Others still shouted in surprise, pointing at the figure perched gracefully like a crane atop the fountain. Radiant in the fading dusk, and casting an enormous shadow before her, Mazaki gazed imperiously at Anne, her basento leveled. Still in shock, the throng formed a ring around them both, leaping back as blades slid from their sheath before cautiously closing in once more. The Black Dahlia brothers burst from the shuffling crowd, closing formation to protect their lanchois. At the same moment, Mizaki's Tarakaji landed with a splash on either side of their leader, weapons raised. Hello, An, said Mizaki, almost conversationally. The blade of her bezento hovered an inch from the man's neck. What is this? Anne cried. Lo, even for you. The left side of his face was tattooed with a dark flower surrounded by creeping vines. The tips of its artichoke-like petals were highlighted in rich burgundy. As the skin of Anne's gaunt face contracted with rage, the flower appeared to wilt. Mizaki glanced around at the scattering bystanders. She nearly smiled. I know what you did, Anne, and I know what you are about to do. You're getting sloppy. What do you want? Anne hissed, stepping away from Mizaki's blade and drawing his own. I won't ask for an apology for killing one of my agents. I know I won't receive one. Instead, I wanted to ask whether or not you had reconsidered our agreement. Her voice was calm and cold. I can forgive you, Anne. Your family does not need to suffer because of your mistakes. A partnership would end this. The Oyabun's attendant stepped forward. It's your choice. Mistakes were made, but not by me, Anne replied through gritted teeth. I'm no one's pawn. The other four dahlias advanced, drawing a vicious combination of swords, spears, and chain boulders. The sight of the weapons elicited an audible murmur from the crowd. Without another word, Mizaki gestured at her foes, beckoning imperiously with an outstretched palm and curled fingers. Try me. On Mizaki's flanks, her Torakaji engaged one foe each, leaving her to grapple with the two remaining adversaries in the center. The Dahlia stepped forward immediately, their motions synchronized, waving their deadly flails with precision, grace, and skill. Mazaki watched the pattern of their movements, waiting for a hole to appear in the wall of blurred steel. When the moment was right, she dove between their weapons. As she skidded to a halt, she sent a wave of magical force that knocked both men to the ground. Mazaki was already on her feet before they could rise. She impaled one through the chest. His bleeding fingers grasped at her basento blade as it sunk deeper and deeper inside him. The other picked himself up off the ground and sought to take another swipe at Mizaki. Before he could complete the blow, she kicked her right leg back. The movement pushed her blade deeper into the man gurgling at her feet while knocking his partner back. She felt the tip of the basento burst from the man's back and hit cobblestone. Victory had come less easily for Mizaki's companions. 
With her partner mortally wounded and bleeding out into the fountain, Akiko was caught between two dahlias. Three pairs of limbs blurred with speed as the Tarakaji's twin Kusuragama countered the oncoming blows from her opponent's swords. But the men attacking her were strong, and Akiko was growing tired. As Masaki changed direction to rush to her aid, her second opponent recovered and spun his flail wildly in her direction. Had she not ducked, Mizaki would have suffered a severe blow to the head. The Oyabun snarled. With another wide swing of her basento, she promptly disemboweled him, showering the cobbles in gore. Glancing back, Mizaki saw Akiko slice one of her blades into the neck of the first Dahlia, while parrying a strike from the second. With a graceful flourish, she withdrew it and quartered her remaining foe with a pristine scissor-like cross-strike from both sickles. Masaki's congratulatory cheer died in her throat as Anne grabbed Akiko from behind. I will waste this girl, he threatened, his voice booming as though he were addressing the whole crowd. Some of the onlookers closed their eyes in horror, while others shouted for the violence to stop. Like the last one. Let her go, Anne, Masaki answered. She hesitated to say more. Look at her, he shouted pulling off Akiko's mask and throwing it into the fountain. Do you want more blood on your hands? Akiko quivered, but her brow was wrinkled in defiance and determination. Her grey eyes betrayed no fear. This is your last chance, Anne. The Dahlias and the Thunders, together. Imagine the possibilities. Even now her voice was calm. Anne let out a vicious laugh. Possibilities, he chuckled darkly, resting with Akiko in his vice-like grip. Look at how well you protect your own. Did you know, Lady Misaki, that with every step you make, your people question your competence? So much so, that as we speak now, one of your pets is conspiring against you. Misaki froze. Anne's eyes widened in triumph. With a mocking shrug, he added, the gremlin already made his play. But who is next, I wonder? The gambler, the relic-hunting playboy, the rail worker, the homicidal monk, the wraith walker, the frail woman from Kamakura. He counted them off one by one. Losotsky. Liar, Masaki responded, Abacento shaking. Let her go, Anne. I swear by my ancestors that I will end you. It takes a lot to call me a liar when you are the pretender, Anne barked. It was true six months ago when you first threatened me, and it's still true now. I would rather die than serve someone unworthy of loyalty. Even your father would never have stooped so low. But Akiko interrupted him. She's not unworthy, the Torakaji hissed, still struggling. Mistress, she called, her voice steady as she addressed her oyabun. Do what you must, as we shall always do for you. Before Masaki could say any more, Akiko drove her own neck into Anne's blade. Just after Crimson sprayed the pavement, Masaki charged forward and swung her basento from earth to heaven. Anne, cloven in two faster than the blink of an eye, spoke no more. You never knew my father, she said before departing in a puff of smoke, just as the distant clanking of a peacekeeper heralded the approach of a guild patrol. 
You know that this is no longer the type of work you need to do yourself. If we need a bruiser, Ototo could have... There is a traitor in our ranks, Misaki interrupted. She breathed in the familiar smell of jasmine, shizo, honeysuckle, and mulberry, wafting from the steaming pot of tea that Monaco Ray set in front of her. It was Mazaki's favorite blend, elegant and subtle, but with a sharp, sweet aftertaste that lingered almost vexingly on the tongue until another sip was taken to provide temporary relief. I think it unwise to believe the words of a desperate killer, Ray muttered. Still, you should have expected betrayal from the moment you separated Baojun's head from his shoulders. We cannot run the risk of not investigating further, especially since Ahn practically mentioned our most elite assets by name. Even when she wasn't wearing her pale white death mask, a rare occurrence, Ray's brown eyes betrayed no hint of emotion. The priestess's time with the Order had left her with a Manichean disposition. She seemed to take all news, no matter how good or bad, as matter of fact. My sources told me nothing about the Dahlias conspiring with a third party, only that Anne would be passing through the square at dusk. It seems that I have some people to visit. Ray muttered this as she used the grinding stone to sharpen the edges of the barbed blades protruding from her right gauntlet. She casually retracted the claw into its concealed chamber. The knives disappeared without a sound. Had I known, I would have advised you to take Anne alive. It's a shame I cannot question him myself. Her regret was delivered without intonation, but Mazaki knew it was sincere. That wasn't an option. Not after Kiko's sacrifice. Masaki said, and one of his dogs killed Tosho. She squeezed her fist. The teacup trembled in protest. I knew it wouldn't be easy with Father gone, but a traitor, already. I am not Baojun. Do people not prefer me? Should I not have killed him? Let's unpack that question. Ray cocked her head more out of curiosity than empathy. Firstly, we don't know if what Anne said was true. Secondly, that's your pride talking, not your common sense. Your father was arrogant and ambitious. His emotions, especially pride, forged a weakness that you exploited, and it cost him his life. It's that simple. You ought not to make the same mistake. You misconstrue my pragmatism for pride, Mazaki snorted, trying but failing to match Ray's nonchalance. Maybe it would have been better if I hadn't eliminated him. Not because I loved him but because his vicious paranoia and addiction to control were the only things holding the thunders together. Masaki narrowed her brow and shot the priestess a coy glance. Let me ask you a question. How do you manage agents when all of them continue to pursue their own agendas, despite swearing to fight for hours? Ray held her tongue. After a long pause, Masaki said, Fear. She looked straight into Ray's eyes. It's as if a bucket of effluent hangs above every doorway, and I have no choice but to go through each of those doors. But Baojun could terrify these people into pouring their own bucket over themselves. Her eyes narrowed. With me, it's two steps back for every step forward, whereas he was carried on a palanquin. Respectfully, mistress, I find that implausible, Ray said indifferently. Your father was cruel, but these people surely had other reasons for complying. I know I did, he... Mazaki cut her off. Back in Nippon, on my thirteenth birthday, 
Father gave me the most beautiful kimono I have ever seen. It was a rich, regal purple, with silver constellations threaded into the folds that twinkled like real stars. She looked over Ray's shoulder, as if she were imagining the garment hanging on the wall behind her. Yamaziko presented it to me in a gilded lacquered box. Then Baljun told me that it was the provincial governor's birthday that evening, and that I was to dress up and be his present. Mazaki blinked and the moment was gone. This pig owed father money. The thunders provided the bribes he paid to the tax collectors. Father knew that he had certain exotic tastes in women. Instead of breaking his legs, he had sent me as a gift, ostensibly to show that all had been forgiven. Her voice was shaking. On top of my kimono was a note written in a single scrawled line. His life or your honour. Choose. What happened? Ray, usually unfazed, was now fidgeting uncomfortably. She kept tapping her grinding stone on the tabletop. What else could I do? I returned later that night with the governor's head in a burlap sack tucked under my arm, Mizaki answered plainly. There were no tears in her eyes, only emptiness. The creep was too busy untying the kimono to notice the knife I hid underneath it. Mizaki struggled not to place her face in her hands. I couldn't sleep that night. Yamaziko helped me wash the blood away, and she held me so tight that I thought she would never let me go. She rocked me until I felt numb and fell asleep on her shoulder. Mizaki took another swig of tea, as if hoping that it might turn into sake the moment it touched her thinly pursed lips. The whole night, she pressed on, I kept dreaming about that man, how close his fingers came to my body, and the stench of his drunken breath on my neck, until everything ended in a red haze. And it wasn't even my first kill. Tell me, Ray, have you ever understood fear like that? The Order teaches us that some experiences defy description. They leave a mark that we cannot describe and that others cannot appreciate. The adage seems apt here. Now you understand, Mazaki nodded. Perhaps I've been too lenient. Baljun's spirit must live on even if he no longer does. There is no other way to keep the thunders together. If what Anne said is true, then McCabe, Yan Lo, Lynch, Mei Feng, Asami, Shen Long, all of the agents he mentioned. My agents. She snatched her basento from the table angrily and headed toward her private bathing quarters. All of them are under suspicion. Her tone became so hushed and distant that it was as if she was speaking to herself. Fear. There is no other way. No other way. Ray stood up and placed a firm but calming hand on her oibon's shoulder. Before you let your emotions betray you, remember that your agents have always been loyal. Akiko died for you, and she knew you less than other members of this syndicate. It wouldn't be prudent to recall every one of your assets and question them. They might change their loyalties if accused of treason. Or worse, questioning them directly may reveal our suspicions to them all. Shouldn't we just torture each and every one of them until the traitor confesses? Misaki asked. That's what my father would have done. There's another way. Oh? 
the Oyabon inquired smugly. Her fingers tightened instinctively around her besento. Without a blade, said Ray firmly, before leaving Masaki to her bath. Nestled at the edge of the slums near the Katanaka trading house, the Kiangong had remained resolute, although not intact since its founding. Against all odds, nothing had succeeded in burning the little kingdom's most venerable saloon to the ground, not Malifaux's persistent gang warfare, not undead and never-born attacks, not the event, not even the chaos accompanying Governor-General Herbert Kitchener's death. Even more shockingly, the establishment escaped the jurisdiction of guild authorities, although every guardsman, marshal, and bureaucrat had enjoyed a drink there at least once. Alongside them, union miners and steamfitters, drifting mercenaries, rogue necromancers, bumbling scrap collectors and dangerous criminals all slaked their thirst for sake and adventure. They gambled, bargained, contracted, and traded as they mingled among the stained tables and worn bar stools. For these desperate souls, the promise of a better life was just as quenching as the honey-coloured liquor that flowed abundantly from the bar's venerable verdigris-stained taps. The Kiangong was uncharacteristically empty on the day Masaki arrived. A grimy sign reading closed for repairs hung from the front door, and several of the windows on the upper floor were shattered. Black sheets were draped over the window frames on the lower floor, clearly meant to deter curious visitors from observing the bullet holes, the half-cleaned blood, and the wooden splinters that they would have otherwise seen inside. Masaki approached the vestibule hesitantly, Ray at her side. The image of a wrought iron key crossed with the elliptical section of a tilted, rounded gong was elegantly carved beneath the door's grimy window. As Masaki reached for the handle, the lamplight flickering behind the stained glass coloured the tops of her knuckles an ominous orange. What happened here? Masaki asked. A story for another time, mistress, Ray responded cagily. Rest assured my contact still wants to meet. Hesitantly, Masaki grasped the door handle and turned, uncertain what she would find within. The moment she entered, however, she felt more confident, as a familiar warmth surrounded her. The air was full of the sweet aroma of heated sake and baking rice crackers. Although the floors were grimy and the wooden tables were charred and worn, the decor felt homely rather than impoverished. Some of the tables were overturned, and shards of glass still littered the floor, but it was clear that whatever clean-up efforts had taken place were nearly complete. I was wondering when you would be coming to collect, Ray. A chuckle rang through the gloom. The laugh was silky and soft, like milk and honey personified, although Masaki had no doubt that the speaker had artfully modulated it this way. She could imagine the same words contorted and weaponized in the blink of an eye with the subtlest of adjustments to intonation and speed. One of the most gorgeous women Mazaki had ever seen emerged from the shadows. She was taller than most ladies from Nippon. Draped across her lithe body was a silken dark purple kimono embroidered with gold-stemmed orchids. The garment was far more expensive and elegant than anything Mazaki had ever bestowed upon even her most loyal Oran. Their sleeves were bedecked with blood-red cherry blossoms, whose luminous bulbs sparkled like rubies. The woman's hair was wrapped into a bun just above her petite ears, like that of a traditional geisha, 
but untamed lustrous locks draped downward past her pale shoulders, clinging to the voluptuous curves of her waist like creeping vines. Her face, although powdered, was flush with natural vigor. Leading at her side was a red parasol patterned with sakura blossoms. Masaki was almost certain that a thin katana was concealed within the parasol's bamboo confines, and she was equally sure that this woman did not need it to kill. Thank you for assisting us, Ray said, inclining her head ever so briefly. Please, there's no need for formalities, the woman chuckled again, and don't thank me yet. She shot Mizaki a look of curiosity infused with disdain. I see you've brought me undesirable company, she said abruptly. Even when expressing displeasure, her voice was as intoxicating as a song. It took Masaki a moment to realize that she had been insulted. Ray, who the hell is this? The Oyabun snapped angrily, eyeing Yuko with a mixture of condescension and uncertainty. Do you know who I am? Masaki's knuckles clenched. But even in her anger, she couldn't help but admire the woman's composure. Mistress, please, this is Yuko Hamasaki, the owner of the Kian Gong. A smile spread across Ray's usually stoic features. It's about time you two met. Masaki froze. I've hunted you for a long time, she said wistfully. We were all searching for a face to match that name. She suddenly fired a furious glance at Ray. You knew this the whole time and you didn't see fit to tell me. Before Ray could answer, Yuko responded with a wry smile. No one knows about me unless I want them to. If I didn't owe Ray a favor, I wouldn't have agreed to this meeting. Her voice became more honeyed with each word, masterfully cloaking the regret hiding behind each syllable. Minako-san understands that people from all over Malifaux feel comfortable here. I owe allegiance to no one. I'd like it to remain that way. It's better for business, you know. Normally I delegate responsibilities to others, but... She cast a sheepish glance at the wreckage around them, her gaze lingering imperceptibly on the bloodstains spattered near the stairwell. Recent events have forced me to take a more, shall we say, hands-on approach to management. You've been a ghost, Masaki said, almost enviously. Not even my best agents could identify you. I've been in here a dozen times, but have never seen you. I prefer to hide in plain sight, Yuko answered casually. I know some of us struggle to grasp that concept. I heard about your encounter with Anne yesterday. You and your men seem to have a flair for attention and drama, Miss Katanaka. The whole crowd learned not to cross the thunders last evening, retorted Masaki. You can't deny that my methods are effective. Are they now? Yuko shook her head with an enigmatic smile. Sometimes it's better to remain invisible. You still haven't answered my question, Masaki pressed. How has no one noticed you? Especially given all of this. She gestured at Yuko's outfit, and then looked at Ray quizzically. But the priestess offered her no answer. Some sort of magic, right? The same spell as my Torakaji use. Don't look at her, Yuko said, amused. You're asking me. 
She rolled her eyes churlishly. I don't always dress like this, you know. And it's not magic. It's mastering how people think. Their biases, heuristics and judgments, often designed to help the mind actually inhibit it and prevent them from seeing what they should. When you know how to exploit these defects, you can avoid unwanted attention. She paused thoughtfully. Well, they're not technically defects since we're all born with them. What are you talking about? Masaki asked skeptically. Yuko snickered. Let me ask you a question. My friend Ichiro is quiet and meek, and he doesn't enjoy socializing with others. He isn't very strong, but he has enough stamina to be considered healthy. He has neat handwriting and is skilled with a brush, and he has mastered basic mathematics. Tell me, is Ichiro more likely to be a bookkeeper or a farmer? Masaki looked nonplussed. What does he have to do with anything, she inquired angrily. You're wasting my time. Oh, don't take yourself so seriously, Yuko said with a jovial wink. Answer the question. Of course he's probably a bookkeeper, said Masaki impatiently. You said it yourself. He's solitary, weak, has neat handwriting, and he can do math. Wrong, replied Yuko flatly. Ichiro grows some of the best shishito peppers on either side of the breach. She laughed. I asked about the probability, not the profession most suited to his disposition. Did it ever occur to you that there are a thousand farmers for every bookkeeper in the world? Yuko shook her head. Of course not, because our minds are quick to make certain judgments through interpretive shortcuts that often do us disservice if employed improperly. They ignore root probabilities and other potentially compromising factors. They pay attention only to people's appearances. I simply exploit those assumptions. I still don't understand. Isn't it obvious? Since I look and act like my girls during the workday, nobody knows that I'm really in charge. They just assume that because I appear docile, I'm a server. Yuko fluttered her voice with a titter on the last few words as if mimicking an ingratiating escort. She chortled and reverted to her former tone. Personality has nothing to do with occupation, at least not really. But I'm only just scratching the surface. Go on, said Mizaki, unable to hide that she was amused, even in her error. Let's try again, shall we? True or false, Yuko began. All lotuses are flowers. Some flowers fade quickly, and therefore some lotuses fade quickly. Mizaki thought for a moment. After scrutinizing each and every line of the syllogism, she said, True. False, said Yuko with a snicker. That doesn't make any sense, said Mizaki, now somewhat angry. You said yourself that if all lotuses... Some flowers do fade quickly, it's true, the geisha interrupted smugly. Especially Dahlia's, it seems, she added with a wink. But think carefully about the second line. Who said that lotuses were ever included in that group? Masaki's eyes widened in realization. Now you see, don't you? As humans, we have a predilection for wanting to confirm something instead of wanting to question it. 
That's why nobody ever asks who's in charge. They just assume I'm not the boss because I carry around a tea tray and serve them rice crackers. You want another example? Fine, said Misaki impatiently. One last one. Excellent, said Yuko, clapping her hands together excitedly. I'll give you three numbers that are related in some way. You are then to give me three numbers of your choosing that you think are related in the same way, and I'll indicate whether or not they match my rule. You can take as many guesses as you want until you figure out the relation I have in mind. Masaki nodded. Two, four, eight, Yuko said. Three, nine, twenty-seven, supplied Masaki almost immediately. Yuko nodded. Four, sixteen, sixty-four. She nodded again. Five twenty-five, one hundred twenty-five. Another affirmative. This is obvious, the Oyabun snorted. The numbers are consecutive squares. Wrong, said Yuko for the third time. But they are. I don't understand. What's the rule, said Mazaki, exasperated. That each number had to be bigger than the one before it. Yuko burst out laughing in full. Again, Masaki couldn't help but be amused despite her embarrassment. You could have said one, two, three. But like most people, you overcomplicated things, Yuko chided. You thought you already knew the answer, and asked all your questions to confirm it. We look for the most difficult explanation possible to elucidate the trivial, and we always try to reconfirm what we expect rather than deny it. And we don't even realize it. You still made this mistake even after I told you the riddle about the lotuses, which taught the same principle. You see, this is why people are easy to exploit. They are predictable, because they constantly exhibit the same patterns of failure and never learn to adapt. And that's helped you survive, posited Mizaki sardonically. Without a blade, she elevated her tone to emphasize the question and her disbelief. You discover how people think, master the shortcuts of their flawed mental gymnastics, and outsmart them. Like I said, it's not magic. But these mind games won't save you from a fight. It's all well and good while you're in the company of rubes who are amused by such things. But out there, she pointed out the door toward the street, you die like everyone else. Yuko was unfazed. Another thing you should know about the human mind she said, as if Mizaki hadn't spoken, is that it has a very limited attention span, and that sometimes things happen in plain sight, and we don't even register them. What do you mean? Yuko raised her thin eyebrows. Well, for one, you've been so focused on me for the past three minutes. But did you see her? She gestured to Mizaki's rear. The Oyabun turned her head, and almost jumped as she came face to face with a beautifully made-up woman holding a knife against Ray's throat. My entertainers appear when I clap my hands, but you are too busy thinking of numbers to notice what was happening to your friend. Or, more likely, you mistook my gesture as an expression of eagerness to ask another riddle. Once again, mental heuristics fail us. You know Himiko here could have slit her throat if I'd wanted her to. The woman behind Ray batted her eyelids. That's enough, said Yuko. I think we've made our point clear. Himiko immediately retreated into the shadows, 
melting away as if she'd never existed. Her mistress took a swig of sake. So tell me, why are you both here? I think your little demonstration speaks for itself, Yuko. You are the eyes and ears of the little kingdom, said Ray, drumming her fingers on the table, somehow unfazed by what had transpired but moments before. There's nothing that you and your entertainers don't know. We have reason to believe that one of our most senior operatives has betrayed us. News about subterfuge in a crime syndicate? How unexpectedly sordid, Yuko responded sarcastically. Seriously, Minako-chan, I thought you were going to ask me a real favour, to poison a drink or seduce a married client for blackmail. Beneath the sarcasm floated the faintest hint of falsehood. Her surprise was just a tad too forced this time. This is serious, Mazaki interjected. We're not here to play games, Yuko. I know you've heard something, because nobody escapes your notice, even if you escape theirs. I thought we were here to play games, the geisha retorted. If I remember correctly, you were having a good time. Please, said Ray urgently. When I saved the Qiangong from Manos' disciples, you promised that you would pay your debt. My mistress and I, she looked at Mizaki, who was still fuming, are not asking you to compromise your secrecy. It's not my secrecy, but my integrity that I fear for, said Yuko. You were willing to commit murder a second ago, chimed in Masaki, with indignant reproach. This is different, retorted Yuko. What I know affects more than the thunders alone. We just want to know what you've heard, pressed Ray. Yuko sighed. Despite the geisha's relaxed expression, Mizaki could tell that her considerable mental forces were exercising themselves to the maximum. She seemed to choose her next words carefully. In three days, beneath the light of the trickster moon, there will be a gathering of sorts in the mountains above promise. I think you should attend, Masaki. It's been too long since you've been back. What? Ray said quizzically. But Masaki understood instantly. She knew exactly what was hidden there. And what will I find at the Ten Thunders Breach Facility, Yuko? The question isn't what, Mizaki, said the tavern owner darkly as she motioned for them to leave. But who? She now turned to Ray, her tone no longer sweet but curt and urgent. Consider my debt paid, priestess. Don't ever come back here unless it's for a drink or to sample my rice crackers. She pointed at the door. This isn't just another one of your mind games, Ray asked, her face the epitome of confusion. Yuko didn't answer. If only it were, said Mizaki, before departing the key and gong for what she sincerely hoped wouldn't be the last time. That's it for another episode of the Breachside Broadcast. 
Join us next time for the conclusion of Three Riddles and a Traitor. 